You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at RedeemerBibleChurch.com. Will you join me in prayer? Father, we are we're so grateful to be gathered again, even though we wouldn't yet describe this as a normal gathering. Uh, we are delighted to be able to see each other's faces, uh, to sing together in, in a little bit, to hear your praises sung, to hear scripture read, and to sit under your good and perfect word. So I pray, Holy Spirit, that amidst our uh, amidst the strangeness of these meetings still, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would clear away any unnecessary distractions. I pray that you would connect the ancient text that is living and powerful uh, to our lives right now. Uh, would you help us see what you have for us this morning through your word? <clears throat> we ask this. In the strong name of our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. Well, please take your copy of the scriptures and turn to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2. I've been uh, waiting for uh, this time when we could gather back in one service. So thank you so much again for your gracious spirit in being willing to go along with what we believe uh, we need to do for this time, and uh, you all have been uh, just delightful as we've walked through this all together. And now we arrive at our second sermon in this series through Daniel, and uh, we'll be in Daniel chapter 2 this morning looking at the God who is wise. So I'd like to dive right into the text to make the most of our time. Uh, if you had a chance to watch Kramer's introductory sermon in Daniel a few weeks ago, you'll notice pretty quickly this morning that the primary theme he brought out will again be dominant, the providence or the sovereignty of God. In fact, we're actually going to see the same theme all throughout the book of Daniel. This is why our series is called Behold Our God. Because the main character in the book of Daniel is not Daniel, it's God. So this morning we'll see God's sovereignty gloriously displayed as he orchestrates events by his power and for his glory. And we'll also see Daniel and his friends walk by faith in the face of difficulty, suffering, and opposition the major divisions of chapter 2 could be explained a couple of different ways. The first would be this. Uh, verses 1 through 16, we find Nebuchadnezzar's challenge. Verses 17 through 30, Daniel's response. Verses 31 through 45, Daniel's interpretation. And then verses 46 through 49, Nebuchadnezzar's response. There's another way to look at it. More directly, we could simply explain chapter 2 this way. Verses 1 through 30, God sets the stage. 
verses 31 through 49, God shows off. Now, don't be distracted by that terminology. God shows off. God is sinless. And so when he orchestrates events for his own glory, when he works in a way that draws attention to himself, it's not selfish. It's not arrogant. He acts only and always in perfect holiness. So let me give you an overview of what takes place in chapter 2, and then I want to draw your attention to a number of sustaining truths we can take from this second chapter of Daniel. Just to be clear, these events take place during the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar and the ongoing captivity of Daniel and his friends. So, Stick with me here. We're just going to walk through this chapter, and then at the end, I'm going to bring out some points of application. Look with me at verse 1. <clears throat> in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king, and the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. The scene is fairly straightforward. Nebuchadnezzar had either a single dream or several dreams that were causing him some measure of angst. During this time and in the culture of the ancient Near East, dreams were considered to be very important. In fact, dreams were believed to be one of the primary ways in which the gods, small g, communicated with humans. And in a society like Babylon, the king's dreams would have been particularly important because of the special relationship the king had with pagan gods. In this instance, Nebuchadnezzar either could not remember the details of his dream or more likely he wanted his wise men to relay the details back to him to ensure an accurate interpretation. And so what does he do? He summons the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and Chaldeans, who are a special group of astrologers. He calls them all to appear before him. Notice Nebuchadnezzar's request in verse 3. I had a dream... And my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Sounds easy enough, right? Well, the, the king's wise men ask him to tell them the dream so they can interpret it. And Nebuchadnezzar responds by insisting that they tell him the details of his dream. The wise men reply in verse 10 with actually a very good and somewhat wise answer. Look at verse 10. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, there is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. In other words, the wise men point out that it's one thing for Nebuchadnezzar to ask them to interpret a dream, but it's a little ridiculous for the king to ask them to tell him what his dream was and then interpret it for him. 
So they declare to the king, ah, king, no one can do that. As you might guess, Nebuchadnezzar isn't thrilled with this response. He becomes furious, commands all his wise men to be destroyed, including Daniel and his friends. Daniel, in response, begins to ask some questions in verses 14 through 16, culminating with a request for a meeting with the king. Daniel then tells his buddies to pray, which seems like a smart move. And friends, notice what the text says. I love these, these little glimpses we get throughout Scripture. This is, not, this is not a band of super spiritual guys, right? We can identify with these young men. What does verse 18 tell us? What's their motivation to pray? Well, they don't want to be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. I mean, that's not a terrible reason to pray. Don't you find yourself praying often out of a sense of total desperation? You're, you're faced with some sort of frightening prospect or hopeless situation, and you don't know anything else to do, so you just cry out to God. Sometimes all you can say is help. I think that's what's happening here. And in answer to their prayers, God graciously reveals the mystery to Daniel, and Daniel responds to God's mercy with worship. Verses 20 through 23. Then in verses 27 through 28, Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar his dream and lets him know that this is an undeniable work of God. Look at verse 27. Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. Isn't that a great verse? Even more, isn't that a, a great truth? Finally, Daniel interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dream in verses 31 through 45, and here's a brief summary. So I want you to look real carefully at the text and just follow along as I point out some different words and phrases here, beginning in verse 38. Nebuchadnezzar is the head of gold. After Nebuchadnezzar will come another lesser kingdom. This is the silver. And after the second will come a third bronze kingdom. You see that in verse 39. Now notice that in addition to these three kingdoms, gold, silver, and bronze, there is a fourth. Verse 40. There shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, which shatters all things. Please don't miss that this fourth kingdom is made of what? Clay. It will be divided. It will not hold together. You can, you can picture that, can't you? A piece of clay that's brittle. Then what comes next in the text? After this fourth kingdom, the stone. This is verse 44. The stone, and the stone represents a kingdom that the God of heaven will set up 
that shall never be destroyed. This kingdom will supersede all the previous kingdoms. And Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel says, should be in no doubt that this vision will one day be reality. These things have been made known by a great God, verse 45. And so the dream is certain and its interpretation is sure. So brothers and sisters, think about this. While the pinnacle of this dream is the coming of the kingdom of God, which will be set up, and it will never be destroyed, so it's in stark contrast to all the other kingdoms mentioned. It's also clear that each of the kingdoms has its own glory. And Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom is the greatest of the first three mentioned. In fact, the earthly kingdoms go downhill after Nebuchadnezzar. So in some sense, this dream is good news for him. Which is why his response to Daniel's interpretation is what it is. Look at verse 48. After falling on his face and paying homage to Daniel, the text says, Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Think about the difference for a moment before we move on. What happens when this self-centered king calls in all of his magicians? They tell him something, or they don't tell him something that he wants to hear, and so he summons them all to death. Daniel tells him what he wants to hear, some good news in his own mind, and he's elevated. Uh, what, a, what a horrible king, what a horrible ruler we should immediately think when we see this horrible king of another king, but we'll, we'll get to that. Friends, as we've already seen in chapter 1, and we will see again and again throughout this study, here's another scene from the life of Daniel in captivity, in danger, facing opposition, and behind all of it is an absolutely sovereign God who is in total control, even though it appears that the cards are stacked against him. That feels like a truth that might be helpful for us today. Nebuchadnezzar has ordered the death of Daniel and his friends, his request Seems absurd. God sets his servant Daniel before the king, gives him boldness and gives him wisdom. And then what happens? Well, God works in a totally unexpected and undeniable way to glorify his own name and to magnify his matchless power. And it also happens to all work together for Daniel's good as well. So we, we hear a story like this, and I think in some sense we're left saying, well, what on earth are we supposed to take from a story like this? I see maybe some points of application, but this is an ancient story. It's an ancient context. Our lives look very different now. So what do we take from this? Well, let me quickly give you five sustaining truths. Five sustaining truths. And, and while these are taken straight from the text, I think you'll see how each of these truths are like cinder blocks that together create a steady foundation for each of us in this present, ever-changing 
and increasingly unstable world. Sustaining truth number one. All earthly power and wisdom is ultimately worthless. All earthly power and wisdom is ultimately worthless. Right away in chapter 2, we find a powerful king who reigns over a mighty kingdom. And what does verse 1 tell us about him? He has scary dreams. What kind of a king is this? Friends, this earthly king is not only frightened by his own dreams, but he doesn't even possess the wisdom to understand what his own dreams mean. And where does it lead him? It leads him to become insecure and angry, making threats because his wise men aren't able to do what he cannot do for himself. This is a man who possesses unspeakable earthly power. And yet we see here that he is profoundly impotent and emotionally unstable. When the wisest men in all the kingdom are called in and they don't have any answers, they're condemned to death because they are useless to the king. So where does the king turn? Well, he doesn't know where to turn. This is what I love about this story and why it gives us so much hope and confidence. Because when he doesn't know where to turn, God turns him where he wants him. And God turns him to Daniel. The king, according to verse 14, is sovereignly turned to this young man named Daniel whose interaction with the king is marked by prudence and discretion. Daniel calmly requests an appointment with the king. So friends, while the wisest man in the, while the, while the wisest men, and we could put that in quotes, the wisest men in the kingdom are panicking, Daniel is setting up a meeting with the king who has just sentenced him to death. Brothers and sisters, this is why it's so important that you and I allow biblical truth to shape the way we view the world and everything in it. You see, if you and I truly believe that all earthly power and wisdom is ultimately worthless, then in times of chaos and uncertainty, we wouldn't panic, we would pray. Which is what we see in our text, isn't it? Those characterized by worldly wisdom panic while worshipers of God pray. Look at verse 18. Daniel and his friends seek mercy and understanding from the God of heaven, which is a fantastic definition for prayer. Why do we pray? Well, because we we seek mercy and we seek understanding. We seek it from the God of heaven. These worshipers of God, again, surrounded by chaos and uncertainty, they don't panic 
They cry out to the one with infinite power and unerring wisdom. Look at verse 20. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. What does it mean that wisdom and might belong to God? It means that true wisdom and might can only come from God. You can't give something that you don't have. We ask God for wisdom and might because he alone has it. And therefore he alone can give it. It's a good reminder here that this is, this is why we are commanded to pray for earthly authorities, but not pray to them. They have nothing for us. Friends, don't long for or become enamored with earthly power and wisdom. It is redemptively powerless and eternally worthless. Submit yourself to God. Seek His wisdom. Rely on His power. Don't give in to panic, but be quick to pray. And this brings us to sustaining truth number two. The only appropriate response to God's sovereign work is heartfelt worship. Even when you don't understand it, the only appropriate response to God's sovereign work is heartfelt worship. Now that worship can take on different forms, but we worship nonetheless. When God displays his glory, his people respond in worship. Nebuchadnezzar commands the death of the four Israelite young men. God then stays the king's hand and gives Daniel a divinely ordained meeting. Daniel and his friends cry out to God and God works. He reveals the mystery in a vision. So look midway through verse 16. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. The text goes on to detail Daniel's response of worship in verses 20 through 23. What a glorious text this is. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we ask of you, for you have made known to us the king's matters. Brothers and sisters, you know what I find so challenging, or perhaps most challenging, about this response by Daniel? how God-centered and detailed it is. Here's what I mean. Look at the text again. I, I think many of us would respond in the same situation, or perhaps I should just speak for myself. I would say something like, God, thanks for revealing the dream and saving my life. And I don't think that would be wrong. But I'm challenged by this. I'm challenged because my response to God's work tends to focus primarily on myself. 
and it lacks a sense of comprehensive awe for who God is, what he's doing, and what he has done. Daniel's prayer here focuses almost entirely on God. He marvels at God's multifaceted glory. Look at it. God changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness. To you I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom. You have made known. When I was rehearsing this, I was reminded of a short quote by John Piper who once said, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life and you may be aware of three of them. Friends, I encourage you to stop at some point soon, like really stop and spend some time recounting all the ways in which God has been and is working in your life. Take out a sheet of paper and begin writing. I think you'll be shocked how quickly your writing turns to worshiping. Here's a third sustaining truth. Sustaining truth number three, being chosen, loved, and used by God produces humility and compassion, not pride and contempt. Let me say that again. Being chosen, loved, and used by God produces humility and compassion, not pride and contempt. Look at verse 30. Daniel explains, But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living. In other words, Daniel makes it clear that this is not about him. There's nothing special about him. God is doing this according to his own plan and ultimately for his own glory. And, and Daniel's just swept up in it. Friends, I want you to consider a couple of questions. What has God allowed you to accomplish? What has God allowed you to accomplish? And I'm saying it that way for a reason. We, I think, naturally slip into this way of thinking that says, here's what I've done, here's what I've gained, here's what I've accomplished. And yet I think the Bible over and over and over again pushes us to think a different way. What has God allowed you to accomplish? In what ways has he gifted you and given you some measure of recognition? Now, have you been quick to realize and to point out that your talents, your abilities, and your achievements have been given to you by God? according to his plan and for his glory. I think we all need to be reminded this morning that we exist to make much of God. Being chosen 
loved and used by God for his glory should produce humility, not pride. But notice back a few verses in verse 24. Therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. I simply want to point out here that Daniel's response to the so-called wise men is not one of arrogance or scorn. He doesn't indifferently look down his nose at the men who are of no use to the earthly king and do not acknowledge the heavenly king. The fact that Daniel knows the truth and these wise men are embracing error doesn't cause him to view them with contempt, but compassion. Wait, let me meet with the king. Friends, I think there's a clear lesson for us here. Those who have been redeemed by God in Christ, who have been rescued by grace alone, we should be humbled. We should be humbled by this reality. And we should look on those who don't yet know and embrace the gospel with compassion rather than contempt. This brings us to our fourth sustaining truth. Sustaining truth number four. The rise and fall of every earthly ruler and every earthly kingdom should make us long for God's perfect and eternal kingdom. The rise and fall of every earthly ruler and every earthly kingdom should make us long for God's perfect and eternal kingdom. Friends, only a fool puts his hope in earthly kings and kingdoms. In Nebuchadnezzar's vision, we see the rise and fall of four earthly kingdoms. But these are set against the perfect kingdom that God will establish. Again, verse 44, a kingdom that will never be destroyed. It will stand forever. As you consider the rise and fall of the kingdoms mentioned here in Daniel, and as you consider the kingdoms of this world that are now present on the earthly stage, you should not react with ambivalence or indifference. You should care what's happening in the world, but you must also resist placing your hope in anyone other than the true king of heaven. Brothers and sisters, God is the sovereign one. He rules the nations. The prophet Isaiah reminds us that our great God, before him, the nations are like a drop from a bucket And are accounted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. That includes all 
nation's friends. Our own nation is no exception to this rule. The Apostle Paul offered this stirring doxology in his letter to Timothy. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. As we've watched the upheaval in our own nation and neighborhood, we have been reminded of precisely what this text emphasizes. No earthly kingdom and no earthly king or president or mayor, or city councilman, or police chief. No one but God can sovereignly intervene and act in perfect righteousness and justice. Therefore, Redeemer, it is no cop-out or lazy response to join our voices together and plead in prayer, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. This is our primary identity. We pray this because it's our only hope. One final sustaining truth. Sustaining truth number five. God orchestrates and executes events for his own glory and the good of his people. God orchestrates and executes events for his own glory and the good of his people. Why does this story recorded by Daniel or recorded in Daniel, why does this story unfold the way it does? Daniel's declaration in verses 20 through 23 affirms that God is sovereign over every detail. He changes times and seasons. So why does this story unfold the way it does? Well, here's the answer. The events of Daniel's life and all that is recorded in this book happens the way it does so that God will be solely and supremely glorified. This is all about God. This whole story is simply a stage on which a true story takes place and in the story, God will be given the credit for everything. We saw already that Daniel gives God all the credit for revealing the dream and its interpretation, verse 27. Then within his interpretation of the dream, Daniel makes it clear that Nebuchadnezzar only has a kingdom because God gave it to him, verse 37. And even in Nebuchadnezzar's response, our attention is again directed Godward. Look at verse 46. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. And the king answered and said to Daniel, Truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. That's not bad for a pagan king. The sovereignty of God is an incredibly important and comforting reality. 
Daniel, who was sentenced to death, is now promoted. And God, who was blasphemed, is now praised. All through a bizarre tale of a king who is having nightmares. Friends, God is amazing. Look what he has done. Redeemer, amidst the heartache and confusion and uncertainty of all that's been happening over the last three months and now the last three weeks, I firmly believe that we will look back and we will see God's hand And we will see how he was gloriously working in totally unexpected ways. And we will marvel. And in awe, we will fall on our faces in grateful worship. And we will cry out, perhaps with the words of this text. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever. To whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I Give thanks and praise. Friends, take heart. Things aren't always as they appear. And we can say that with joy, fighting for joy, fighting for hope, because we see how God has worked in the past. And we have every confidence that he will continue to work that way as we move toward the time when this kingdom, this perfect kingdom, will finally be established. God will rule and reign forever in perfect holiness. We long for that day. Let's pray together.